Hello and welcome to the second episode of Alternative Fund Insight, exploring trends in hedge funds and private markets. We welcome a very special guest to this episode, the leading financial author, Sebastian Malaby. His latest book, Power Law, tells the story of the venture capital industry and has been required reading this year in Silicon Valley, on Wall Street and financial centres around the world. He also wrote More Money Than God, considered by the industry as the definitive history of hedge funds. So, this episode of AFI takes the long view. With Sebastian Malaby's help, we put the market events of this year in a historical context, and he explains why conditions are starting to suit hedge funds again, with macro managers at the forefront. Sebastian, thank you for joining AFI today. I was a big fan of More Money Than God and have enjoyed your recent book on venture capital. Could I ask you to start by introducing the concept of the power law? Yeah, I mean, the best way to start is to say it's not a normal distribution, which is that familiar bell curve that we all know. In other words, in a bell curve, everything clusters around the average observation, which is also the median observation. And so if you think about the height of American men, the average American man is five foot 10 feet tall. And two thirds of the American men are between five foot seven and six foot one. So within three inches of that median, that's a typical normal distribution. But some data sets are not normally distributed. In fact, they have a power law distribution where a few observations in the set dominate massively uh, everything else. Um, So if you think about the wealth of American men, not the height, um, imagine um, a cinema and, uh, you know, at the back there's an NBA uh, player and he's by far the tallest. He walks out uh, because he's bored of the movie halfway through and the residual American man, actually the average height hasn't changed much. But if the bored guy at the back is Jeff Bezos and he walks out, the average wealth of the residual man uh, is crashing, plummeting, right? And so the point is that in a parallel distribution, you get this phenomenon where the best investment in a portfolio of 10 bets is generating more returns than all of the other nine put together. Mm-hmm. And for an investor, that is a strange thing. I mean, compared to public markets, right? Uh, in, in, if you're a hedge fund trader or whatever, and you were, you were told that eight out of 10 bets would go to zero and that all your returns would come from one or two uh, successful ones, you know, you might have a nervous breakdown and go home and give up. I mean, uh, but in venture, that's just how you have to roll with it. The timing of your book was very interesting because it's been an incredible few years for venture cap. Massive increases in valuations concentrated in technology. Now, obviously, we've had a big sell-off this year. More money than God came after years of very strong hedge fund returns, and they've been more muted since. So I should probably ask you, is there something you know that we don't? But I will ask, 
do you think the crashing valuations this year showed that things had got out of hand in venture? What what are the lessons going forward? Yeah, I think any crash in any bubble tells you that things got out of hand. And, and we've certainly seen a bubble correcting in 2022. I think more specifically, the thing which really got out of hand in the technology investing world was the so-called growth investing. In other words, um, the company is already a unicorn, but it's still private and Tiger Global or Co2 or SoftBank or one of these famous growth investors goes in and writes a check for, you know, 20 million, 50 million, something like that. More like 50 to 100, maybe. Uh, the early stage stuff um, where you're doing a, the product is not yet um, proven and it's a seed check, a series A check, even a series B check. Uh, I think that stuff was much less overheated. Um, and so I think the biggest correction has come for the Tiger Globals of the world. And Tiger Global has attracted a huge number of headlines this year. It's made some heavy losses. You are one of the few writers to have interviewed Chase Coleman, the founder of Tiger Global. He was one of the first hedge fund managers to build this focus in private market investing. Do you think you could explain his approach? I know he termed it the the this of the that. And how Tiger Global has been perceived to have changed the venture investing model. Sure. I mean, what happened really was that he was this long, short uh, hedge fund uh, investor uh, who came out of the Julian Robertson uh, Tiger family. Uh, he had been an analyst working for Julian Robertson at Tiger. Then he set up Tiger Global as a kind of seed fund in the same building with capital from Julian Robertson, his patron. And so that was his DNA as an investor. And he was trying to do Long short, uh, he was interested in technology because that was the sector he'd specialized in for Julian before. And there really wasn't much technology to back. If you were looking around in 2002, 2003, the NASDAQ correction wasn't, you know, wasn't quite over, particularly in 2002. And if you were trying to go long on anything, it was pretty tough. And what he discovered was there were some deals in China. Um, and in fact, it was Scott Schleifer, his partner, who discovered this. And when they did those deals, which were in public companies, so classic hedge fund stuff, they realized that the next set of deals they would want to do in China were in private companies. And so they set up, it was, it was more that the opportunity led the model than vice versa. They set up the private fund um, sort of side pocket to have longer lockups mm to make it possible to do these private deals in China. And then they realized that what they wanted to do in China was, as you said, the this or the that. In other words, you'd already done you know, um, a, a, a job marketplace online in the US. You'd already had um, an auction site like eBay. You'd already had e-commerce like Amazon. You'd had search like Google. And the game in China, which was kind of 10 years behind, was to replicate all those proven business models from the United States and do them in China. So it was the Amazon of China, the Google of China. And having done it in China rather successfully, Tiger Global then tried to find the this or the that in Russia. So again, the Google of Russia, et cetera, the Amazon of Russia. They took this to Latin America. They took this all over the place. The advantage of this approach, and this is where you know, Tiger became what it later turned out to be, is that in some sense, the this or the that 
was a formula for chasing, in a way, technology investing beta. It was not about finding an extraordinary entrepreneur with an unbelievable vision going on his board, sitting next to him at meetings and trying to build something with him as a partner. It was about finding things that were already past the billion dollar valuation probably, already had some speed and momentum. The entrepreneur was proven because he'd already built something. The product market fit was proven because it was already selling well. And you were just giving this growth equity, this, this ability to scale faster. I mean, beta is a little bit unfair because there was some skill, I think, in, in executing. But um, so it's not quite an index um, like you would buy in an ETF, but it's close to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's fundamentally a different game to doing alpha in a Series A bet. And I think that as the when obviously when the whole market corrects, it's beta that gets hit the hardest. And that's what's happened to Tiger Global in 2022. So in a way, it was moving away from the kind of Silicon Valley kind of human interaction based approach to a more kind of numbers led Wall Street approach, which worked very effectively on the way up. Exactly. And it worked effectively if the game was technology is booming and you need to get lots of exposure fast. That's what it was great for. And they did it brilliantly. How did that change the model? Because a lot of existing investors in venture have been quite against how Tiger operated, valuations went up and that fed through the system. So maybe you could comment a bit on on that kind of clash with the old guard, you could say. Sure. Well, I mean, back in the day in the 1990s, you know, Amazon raised venture capital and within, you know, a short period, I think it was a year or two, was going public at a valuation of less than 500 million. And so when growth investing became a thing, um, especially after 2009, when Facebook did a famous deal with Yuri Milner, the Russian investor. That was really the, the point where growth started to grow <laughs> in the US. Uh, and so from 2009 on, um, you certainly didn't need to go public at a valuation of less than half a, million, uh, half a billion dollars, as, as uh, Amazon had done. Mm-hmm. To the contrary, you could raise this easily accessed uh, private growth capital. And the investor would say to you, listen, um, my proposition is that I won't go on your board. I won't bother you. I will vote all my shares with you. So your control over your company is enhanced. This is not like going public. You're not going to have to do a quarterly earnings call. Nobody's going to short your stock, which Mm -hmm. might happen if you go public. The SEC is not on your case about demanding various disclosures and compliances and so forth. And so you know, we believe in you, oh, brilliant founder, you've built a unicorn already, and now have some more cash and carry on. And, you know, again, this was great when the founders were mostly creating value because it was a bull market for tech. But it was not so great if you believed in governance and oversight and checking entrepreneurs and making sure they didn't go overboard. The problem for the Series A crowd was that there they were, going on the board, doing lots of work in trying to help build the company, um, interviewing all the early hires, introducing the company to the early first customers, um, offering strategic advice about who should come into the next round. All that stuff about managing the ups and downs emotionally of the founder. You know, Venture Capital said one of them to me, I think it was somebody from Benchmark, Venture Capital is a game where on a Friday evening at 7pm you get a call from the founder who says, 
you know, I've got a health problem. My CFO has got his hand in the till and my chief engineer is quitting because his wife is pregnant. He doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, and will you come over and see me? And you basically blow off all your weekend plans and you go off and you hold the hand of this poor uh, founder who's, who's stuck and emotionally distraught. The hands-off attitude of growth investors was the opposite. And where it really became messy was in examples like WeWork and Uber, where you had a very successful early start for a company. But then as these later stage growth investors came in and wrote big checks with no diligence, no oversight, no checks and balances on the founders, and the founders went off the moral and commercial rails uh, because they, their heads were so inflated. Um, mm. And the Series A investors who could see this happening and wanted to rein them in knew they should have a proper CFO to do proper financial controls now that they were a big company, knew that you shouldn't allow sexual harassment inside the company, knew that you shouldn't break the law when it came to Uber rolling out in a new city where the local municipal authority was trying to stop them. You know, the Series A investor was saying loudly, you can't do this. And the founders were saying, I don't have to listen to you because I've raised all this money from growth investors and they're fine with all this. So that's where the tension came. And my worry for the future is that although the bursting of the bubble in 2022 has humbled the growth investors to a, to a degree, um, it remains basically a great model for making returns in, in anything other than a, than a really bear market. And so I think this governance problem for unicorns has yet to be solved. There might be an argument now that you will see fewer of these crossover funds where hedge funds move into this private markets arena. At the same time, valuations have come down to such an extent that they might look quite appealing. In the meantime, is the model going to change? Yeah, yeah. And furthermore, you know, if you are a Tiger Global limited partner and you've been investing since 2005, say, you know, basically you had 16 years of off the charts, fantastic returns and one terrible year. You're just going to look through that. You're going to carry on giving Tiger Global money. I'm convinced they're going to be completely fine as a business. And therefore, why would they change? Um, I think they'll just carry on writing fast checks to the this or the that. And their LPs will probably do well. It's going to create a lot of you know, hubristic unicorn founders who maybe would do better with more checks and balances. Turning to more money than God, it was interesting reading the power law and contrasting the approach of Tiger Global during the tech boom with Julian Robertson, the founder of Tiger, the patron of Chase Coleman, who was wary of internet stocks and bet against them in the years up to the dot-com bust. Those bets actually led him to close Tiger down because the boom outlasted his positions. I thought that was a really interesting contrast. Yeah, that's right. Um, Julian Robertson, uh, I guess at the time all this was happening, I think he was in his late 70s, and he just he wrote these letters to his limited partners, which are rather colourful. He gave me the entire set of them when I was writing More Money Than God. And um, in these letters to his partners, he just described his befuddlement at the idea that some dot-com company was worth, you know, more money than United Airlines or, or whatever it was. 
he just couldn't get his head around it. So he was short the the tech bubble, and of course he was right. But um, he, you know, the market can be irrational longer than you can stay solvent sometimes. So it's twelve years since the book came out. In those twelve years, the hedge fund industry its client base, its operations have all institutionalized. It's not the freewheeling industry it was perhaps in the 80s and 90s, but performance has been mixed. There's been more buzz around private markets. What do you think the outlook is for hedge funds now? I actually think it's getting better again. Um, The reason I say that is I think quantitative easing and super loose uh, monetary policy had a lot to do with the fact that hedge funds didn't do so well for 10 years. Uh, The reason I say that is you can think about a hedge fund as a business that is paid to accurately price risk. And if risk spreads have been squashed down by the Fed or by central banks, you'll just get paid less money to perform that risk assessment service. And I think with inflation back and interest rates therefore have to rise to get inflation under control, and we're going to a choppy market where there'll be recessions in many of the advanced economies. There'll be distressed debt opportunities. There'll be all sorts of workouts, special situations. You know, there can be some interesting currency uh, moves as different central banks respond to inflation in different ways. For example, Europe right now could do more in the way of assuming that inflation is transitory because it's caused by the Ukraine war spiking energy prices dramatically. The US doesn't have that Ukraine effect to the same degree. So its inflation is more non-transitory, despite what the Fed was saying last year. And so I think there's going to be, you know, we've already seen a big dollar bull market, but I, I think that could run a bit more. And anyway, currencies, as they overshoot and move against each other, is great for macro traders. So I think in general, we're in a world of more instability now with inflation higher mm-hmm. and central banks having to tighten. And that's good for hedge funds. And we've already seen that this year with macro CTA strategies performing really well with all of this volatility. Equity hedge fund strategies, on the other hand, have not done so well. Do you still regard hedge funds as the titans of finance or do you think the, the Tiger Global story this year, Melvin and GameStop, last year kind of undermined that a bit the business of investing in technology you know since 2009 has just dwarfed everything else in terms of where the action has been if you look at the way that the fang stocks came to just dominate the total value of the s&p 500 that would be one measure of what i'm talking about if you look at the way that the valuation of apple um i think it went 10x in the 2010s Um, whereas the value of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley was up sort of 50%. Basically, Sarbanes-Oxley came in, and um, first of all, and then you had Dodd-Frank after the 08 crisis. So you had two waves of big financial regulation, which took a lot of the steam out of Wall Street and out of financial structuring and all the tricks that you play on Wall Street. And the action instead shifted to tech as the frontier of of where wealth was being created. And so, you know, the closest thing to the rise of Goldman Sachs I've seen in the last decade is Sequoia Capital, you know, going from being um, a 
boutique venture capital Silicon Valley operation that only did early stage to being a global investor that does early stage and middle stage and even hedge funds because it's basically a all-purpose technology diversified investment shop now. Um, so that is the new Goldman, as it were. Mm-hmm. I think it, it would be wrong to say that, that hedge funds have remained the titans of finance because of, I think, venture capital became that. On the other hand, you know, as I say, I think the return of volatility, the return of higher interest rates, the humbling of central banks because of inflation is going to mean a lot more opportunity in the future. I mean, I wrote, in addition to More Money Than God and The Power Law about about hedge funds and venture capital, I wrote a biography of Alan Greenspan, which gave me, you know, a deep dive into central banking. And I think you can very much see the way that the rise of central bank prestige uh, with the advent of inflation targeting in the 1990s corresponded to the clipping of the winds of hedge funds, right? Because in the 90s, some of the most famous hedge fund trades, like Soros beating the Bank of England with the collapse of the pound, or Soros going into Thailand and Indonesia and all that stuff, this was basically hedge funds versus central banks. And the central banks became the absolute powers of the land because of quantitative easing and the response to 08. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you saw a reduction in hedge fund prowess. And I think now with the return of inflation, the fact that central banks have to go back to basically job one, which is controlling inflation, is going to raise, you know, create more opportunities uh, for hedge funds to profit. It's very timely that you should mention that because it is 30 years this September since Soros broke the Bank of England. Are we now returning to a market environment more akin to that time? central banks have some very difficult decisions to make now with inflation at 9%. That is a crisis. And central banks have to raise interest rates to fight that inflation. And so if there is a financial stability problem, for the first time in like 25 years, the central bank is going to have to say, can I respond to that financial stability problem? Or do I have to think about price stability first? Mm-hmm. And that thing of choosing between price stability and financial stability was like bread and butter discussions at the Fed in 1990. I mean, having, having gone through all the transcripts of their discussions for my Greenspan biography, you know, I know this stuff more than I wish to. Um, uh, but that was just normal discussion um, 25, 30 years ago. And now it's going to come back. They're going to have to choose. Oh, Italy is looking unstable. We would like to help Italy by, you know, providing more liquidities for, from the central bank for Italy. But we have to fight inflation in the eurozone. How do we do both? It's a challenge. I mean, they're going to try and square the circle by creating new instruments and all that. But it's going to be an interesting experiment. And I suspect that macro traders may profit from it. OK, I've got two final questions for you. So some of the great insight from the venture book focused on the early career of Elon Musk in the 90s Silicon Valley scene. He now has a very dominant position in the business and Wall Street world. What do you make of his progress and his actions this year in terms of the Twitter deal? He has been as crazy as one would have expected. Um, if one had been talking to, you know, people he did business with in the 1990s. I mean, I... I always remember this story. I went to see Peter Thiel one day and he told me this story about how 
you know, they were partners in PayPal because there were two companies initially doing payments. One was called PayPal, which Peter Thiel had co-founded. One was called X.com, which Elon Musk had founded. And at a certain point, they merged together. And so now the two of them are partners and they're very strong personalities. And uh, Musk had spent almost all his wealth on this crazy McLaren supercar. And he said to Thiel, let's go for a drive. We're going to go down Sand Hill Road. We're going to go visit Michael Moritz, our venture capitalist. And we're going to ask him for some more money. But we're going to get there fast in my car. Watch this. Mm. So they get in this car together. And at a certain point, Musk hits the accelerator of his supercar. And the thing spins out of control on Sand Hill Road, hits the median strip, flies up in the air, does a 360 in the air, and lands with a crash on the ground. And mercifully, neither man is hurt. But they get out of the car, they're dusting themselves off, the car is totaled. And Elon Musk is laughing hysterically. And Peter Thiel says to him, Elon, why are you laughing? We almost died. And Elon said, I'm laughing because the McLaren was not insured. So he just has a risk tolerance that is off the charts. And what seems to have happened with Twitter is that he bought it as a joke, just like he, or he said he would buy it as a joke, just like he hit that accelerator on his supercar as a joke. And it flies up in the air, does a 360 and lands with a crash. And it's going to cost him this time, you know, the McLaren probably cost him, you know, three or four million dollars. This is costing him more than a billion, right? That is the penalty for pulling out of the deal that he's going to have to pay. And on some reckonings, it's going to be way more than a billion. Finally, where are you focusing your attention next? You've done hedge funds, you've done venture, maybe private equity, crypto perhaps? I am looking at crypto, uh, I have to confess. I find it intellectually fascinating and mind-stretching to get my mind around which of these purported use cases is really credible and which is a bunch of nonsense and total hype. Now, the key thing to understand is that in a parallel business, going back to the beginning of our chat, you don't have to have everything work. If one thing out of 10 works, that's success and that could change the world and it could be a massive wealth creation opportunity. So I can be bullish on crypto whilst thinking that 90% is nonsense. Uh, the question is, can I confidently identify 10% which isn't nonsense? And that's what I've been thinking about for the last two or three months. Despite having that kind of bearishness on a lot of it, you do actually see value because some people write it off altogether, but you do see kind of value creation there. That's where I'm leaning. Yeah, hmm. we'll see. Well, fascinating, Sebastian. Thank you so much for your time. Nice to be with you, Will. Thanks for doing this. Thank you to Sebastian for his time and some remarkable insights into hedge funds, venture capital, and, of course, the risk appetite of Elon Musk. For more, please head to www.alternativefundinsight.com for my five takeaways from the interview with Sebastian. You can also sign up to the free AFI newsletter and start the week with a briefing on the latest in alternatives, or follow the company on LinkedIn for regular updates. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Any written reviews would be gratefully received. And thank you for tuning in to Alternative Fund Insight. See you soon.